that thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no home, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul. Whatever thou be, until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. Hello, Ouija board shirt guy. Yeah, thanks for uh, ordering one of our new shirts for me. You're welcome. Uh, episode 98, so close to 100 episodes of Scared to Death, coming in on two years of spooks. Yes, I'm so excited. And mm-hmm. if you're a patron, don't forget to be checking uh, your messages there for giving us some ideas for the drinking game we're going to play during our 100th episode. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And then also, like, you're burning questions for us to answer at the end of the show. <laughs> so it'll be like a nice, fun, long episode, and we'll be probably a little tipsy by the end. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, it's going to be fun. Oh, yeah, I'm nervous. It was like, okay, every time Lindsay says... GTFO, or uh, there were like a, a few things I just started laughing, and I was like, oh, I didn't know we said that word all the time. Oh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be a good learning experience. Like, oh. Whoopsies. And you have some book info for us, correct? I do have some book info. So, you know, you guys, we pre-record these episodes, so mm-hmm. hopefully by the time you hear this episode, you are have already ordered your book, and sales are going swimmingly, and we're thrilled, and it's so much fun. Uh, If you haven't ordered your book, you can hop on over to badmagicmerch.com to get volume two of the Scared to Death fan stories that we've compiled into almost 600 pages of scary tales, including the bonus episodes and the live show um, fan stories. And uh, we did season uh, volume one last year Mm -hmm. and there were some of those available so you might still be able to get it if you hurry on over there and the books are on pre-order and if you order now you will definitely have it in time for halloween yay yay spooky stories and then one quick uh you know uh uh oh my god donation announcement and then we're getting to stories Uh, thanks again to our Roberts and Annabelles on Patreon for allowing us to donate $14,400 to supportsurfside.org, a hardship fund just established by the Miami Heat basketball team to help those impacted by the devastating building collapse in Surfside, Florida. <clears throat> Excuse me. To find out more, please visit supportsurfside.org. I love how both of our voices are a little like, Ugh. Who knows what's Who? going on? Lord knows. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, how many tales do you have, Lulu? Enter- I... Entertain us. Okay. I will. I'd be happy to. Um, I have two tales this week. And, oh, yeah. One is uh, re- around water. Like, mm, okay. Like I haven't a, had one of those in a while. I know. And I'm very excited about this. It takes place in the Pacific Northwest. So, of course, love something a little bit close to home. And then the other one is about, I want to make sure I get this right. Yep. It's about uh, also being underground. So, my both of my stories take place underneath the surface Mm -hmm. under the water and then underground yeah underground in a bomb shelter oh really Mm -hmm. that's cool it it is cool it's scary but cool i have a minor well actually one one has some underground elements some tunnels uh for the first story we're gonna head to massachusetts and and i have two as normal uh and, and look at some spooky medical records supposedly found in the abandoned and infamous danvers state hospital aka danvers asylum why do i feel like i've been there Danvers Asylum out in uh, Massachusetts? I don't know. I've maybe mentioned it before. It's a pretty famous old asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, infamous, uh, yeah, Danvers Asylum before buildings on the psychiatric campus were either torn down, lost to fire, or converted into apartments. And then we head to England and look into a variety of haunted lore that surrounds Alton Towers, current amusement park, former Noble Manor, Fort, and more. Cool. So, yes, a lot of setup, uh, much of it creepy and scary in its own right with this first story. So plenty of time to get cozy. Okay, I've got on some slippers this week. Oh, those are cute. I know, they are cute. And I've got on this, like, shirt. If you're lucky, you might get a little boob shot, you guys. (laughs) Woo-woo. It's cool. It's very um, kind of kind of. I don't know if I want to say punk rock, but uh, uh, I think of like rancid and oh. bands like that, like southern Southern California punk. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like a very SoCal vibe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well let's do it. Okay, so uh, now we're headed to Danvers State Hospital, an asylum where some terrifying, not paranormal events have definitely occurred over the over the years, and the paranormal energy of these events may still linger on the grounds of the former hospital today. Danvers State Hospital would become so notorious and infamous for barbaric treatment of the severely mentally ill that it would become the inspiration for H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham Asylum, or I'm sorry, Arkham Sanitarium, which would then inspire the DC Comics Dark Gothic Hospital for the criminally insane Arkham Asylum. Danvers State Hospital was a large psychiatric facility located in Danvers, Massachusetts, just 20 miles north of Boston, that officially opened in 1878 after four years of construction. State-of-the-art for its time, it was one of a new kind of compassionate care facilities that viewed mental instability as not some sort of untreatable curse, but as a treatable disease. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's what was the intention there. Didn't didn't work out great in the end, but Ew. overall, it was regarded as a humane and modern place for those suffering from troubles of the mind and spirit to recover, at least when it first opened to us. At a cost of $1.5 million, over $40 million in today's money, the hospital was built following the Kirkbride Plan a system of asylum design popular in the U.S. in the mid to late 19th century advocated by Philadelphia 19th century psychiatrist Thomas Story Kirkbride. Kirkbride believed that an aesthetically pleasing environment and substantial exposure to natural light and strong fresh air circulation were crucial to good mental health. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. Uh, While Kirkbride hospitals adopted uh, various architectural styles, they all shared a bat wing style floor plan housing numerous wings that sprawl outward from the center. Uh, it's a style that's become associated with a classic horror look in modern years. Yeah, I find it funny that it was uh, to be this really peaceful place. And then the look they ended up with with these Kirkbride plans mm-hmm. is like the classic horror look for an asylum today. Huh. It's a very kind of, I don't know if gothic is the totally correct term, but very creepy gothic look in my mind. Okay, you'll have pictures afterwards? Yeah. Uh, yes, some. Yeah, look, I looked. It's, it's crept in the imaginations of many a horror film director and graphic novelist illustrator. Uh, Danvers Hospital originally consisted of two main center buildings, housing administration, with four additional radiating bat wings on each side of the administration block. The kitchen, laundry, chapel, and dormitories for the attendants were in a connecting building in the rear. Middleton Pond supplied uh, the hospital its water. On each side of the main building were the two primary wings for housing and treating male and female patients, respectively. The outermost wards were reserved for the most hostile patients. Over the years, additional buildings were constructed around the original Kirkbride design and alterations were made to the original structures. Some alterations pertain to the underground aspects of the Danver buildings. Most of the buildings on campus were connected by a massive labyrinth of tunnels designed to reduce exposure to the elements for staff and patients traveling between the buildings during the cold winter months. It was in these tunnels that some patients, especially once the hospital became Vastly overcrowded, would get lost, disoriented, turn around, turned around, and simply just would never find a way out. Ugh. It was so overcrowded for a time that there were just not enough staff to keep track of too many patients spread out between too many buildings and far too many feet of tunnels. 
The original plan was designed to house 500 patients with attic space potentially housing 1,000 more. By the late 1930s and 1940s, over 2,000 patients were being housed and overcrowding had become severe. Funding was woefully inadequate to provide the proper amount of staff. Patients were eventually held uh, in the dark, dank basements of Danvers, never intended for patients. So much uh, for the air circulation and substantial exposure to natural light that Kirkbride envisioned. Patients wandered around throughout dark hallways, often unmedicated, unsupervised, sometimes not even clothed. It was not to make light of mental illness truly a madhouse. With no orderlies properly tracking them, let alone cleaning them, many patients lived in their own filth. Few were making any progress with their mental health. Many were getting worse, much worse. The compassionate care facility had become a house of horrors. So much suffering. Much of the treatment patients did receive was barbaric. Shock therapy and straitjackets became the norm. Both were often applied way too liberally uh, liberally and incorrectly. Patients had their brains scrambled from too many volts, applied too long and too often. Others were wrapped in a straitjacket, locked in a room, and shamefully forgotten. And then there were the lobotomies. Operations often considered unethical when they were successful, and so many were not successful. In 1939, a total of 278 people died in Danvers just that one year out of a population of 2,360. So even more than 2,000 there now. Many died from failed surgeries, bleeding out on the operating table after being strapped down for an operation they hadn't consented to receiving. Oh, my God. Scientifically cold doctors viewing human patients as nothing more than lab rats, uh, literally drilled holes into the skulls and pulled out portions of their brains. Uh, By 1942, an American physician, Walter Freeman, claimed to have perfected the lobotomy. And he performed over 200 of the operations. Holy shit. His technique was surprisingly simple and shockingly brutal. He thrust a long rod into the corner of the patient's eye, essentially an ice pick, uh, literally lightly hammer it into the brain before wiggling the rod around a bit and then simply withdrawing it. The the brain's connections to the prefrontal lobe had now been severed. Hundreds of these lobotomies were carried out at Danvers. The patient would often be rendered passive, calm, zombie-like, then left to wander the halls in a numb, emotionless daze. They often no longer suffered the symptoms of their mental illness, but was their new reality of not feeling anything at all better or worse than before? Would you rather have uncontrollable emotions or none? Would eliminating your personality be worth controlling your mental illness? Those who were not lobotomized in Danvers suffered just from being there. Just the atmosphere alone could drive you to insanity. One former employee was interviewed and asked, what was the worst thing he saw at Danvers? He replied, back when they started dual diagnosis, they transferred this 15-year-old boy from Hogan to DSH. The boy had a habit of crawling into heat ducts. The heat ducts didn't go anywhere at Hogan. It's a newer building. You can't get hurt. Very different at DSH. Anyway, they sent him up to us, and he was with us for about three weeks before he disappeared. We searched everywhere for him. We looked all over. We couldn't find him. Then the staff over at J Ward started to notice a horrible smell, getting worse and worse every day. Anyway, to make a long story short, he got inside the ductwork in J Annex, and he never got out. Oh, God. The ductwork in DSH goes right down to the heating coils. He slid down, Mm. couldn't get up, Mm. got trapped, and died. His feet landed right on the coils and literally burnt off up to his shins. I was there. I had to go over and help cut him out of the wall. Holy shit. There must have been 25 people in the room that day. The medical examiner, uh, clinicians, you name it. I cut the wall and then Bush, the tinsmith, was there to cut the tin ductwork. When we cut through it all and opened opened it up, the kid was right there and looked almost frozen. The pathologist reached in to take him out and his hand sunk into his chest like, I don't know, jello or something. 
The smell was disgusting. It was a nasty stench, and I think we all got sick. His death brought on a major, major state investigation. His parents were mad as hell, and rightfully so. We had big wigs from Boston and the state police lab up there for weeks. It was just a horrible experience. I've seen a lot in my 24 years. That was by far the worst. Finally, a little over half a century ago, the machinery of Danvers Asylum, decades removed from consistently dishing out that compassionate care, began to wind down. The hospital began closing wards and facilities in 1969. By 1985, the majority of the original wards had been closed or abandoned. The administration block in one of the original Kirkbride buildings closed in 1989. Patients were moved to the Bonner Medical Building across the campus. The entire campus was then closed on June 24, 1992, and all patients were either transferred to the community or to other facilities. And by June 2006, all of the Danvers State Hospital buildings that were marked for demolition had been torn down, including all of the unused buildings and old homes on the lower grounds and all of the buildings on the hill. The underground tunnel from the power plant still exists. It's unclear how many other tunnels might still be open or at least able to be reopened if a seal were destroyed. The original buildings not destroyed were refurbished and turned into apartments. Right away in 2007, mysterious fires began to break out in the apartment complexes that had been built on the Danvers site. Angry spirits of former tortured patients? Crazy possibility to imagine, but some believe it. The last few years have been fire-free, but several have claimed to continue to witness apparitions believed to be former patients. And perhaps the most unfortunate and anonymous patient of the following account is among them. This story comes entirely from a doctor's notes about his patient that someone exploring the abandoned hospital came across in the 90s. They weren't sure when the notes were dated or who they were referring to, making any attempt to track down the people involved pretty futile. Time now for the tale of It Wants to Rip Out of Me. Day one. Began with new patient. 28-year-old white female admitted by husband for self-harming tendencies. Patient is 5'6", 112 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. Patient has not been in psychiatric care before. Was observed to look interested and shy, but not frightened or worried. Husband accompanied patient. He works as an auto mechanic. Patient attained a high school education in some college when married five years ago. Left school to become homemaker. Around husband, patient is fidgety, uncertain, but left on her own in her room, shared room with name redacted, became more open to conversation, even smiled. I was introduced to the patient on rounds and we agreed to meet for a private session this afternoon. Afternoon session. Went over patient's history, fears. Father died in an automobile accident when patient was 10 years old. Patient does not drive, does not like to drive with husband. Source of tension between patient and husband, one of many. Further source of tension is topic of starting a family. I asked patient if she did not want children. No, I want them, she said, hesitating slightly. Patient had changed from civilian clothes into clothes provided by DSH. I see long, thin scratches on her arms from elbow to wrist. She sees me looking and folds her arms. I just have to get all this sorted out before we try. I asked patient what all of this means. Patient smiled. Well, she said, I'm crazy. At least that's the official story. I asked patient if she believed she was crazy. Isn't everyone who comes here crazy? She didn't wait for me to respond. Have you ever felt something that was invisible to everyone else? You could feel it, but no one else could? I nodded yes. Well, that's what's happening to me. Patient seemed incredibly lucid, showing no signs of psychosis. Charming, even. I asked about what she was seeing that no one else could see. It was just a few weeks ago when it started, she said, still in a neutral, lucid tone. I've had eczema since I was a kid, so I was no stranger to feeling an itch on my forearms right below the elbows, but this seemed abnormal to me right from the start. It was a hot itch, and it would come and go. My skin would get so red and irritated, I'd scratch it, it would get worse, and then by the time I put some cortisone cream on it, it would just be completely gone. 
So I'd stop worrying about it. But then it would just come back the next day or maybe just a few hours later. I began to wonder if patient was experiencing something related to environmental factors, allergic reaction to chemical. Perhaps husband pressured her into being admitted to DSH. Perhaps she does not meet the criteria for psychiatric treatment. Patient kept talking. Then one day, a week or so after the odd rashes began, coming and going, I, I felt something moving under my skin. I went into the bathroom so I could have the best possible light and looked at it with my own eyes, both directly and at the reflection in the mirror. It looked like, and now you're really going to think I'm crazy. It looked like a tiny little hand Ugh. pushing against my skin from the inside. And soon there was a second tiny hand pushing, like a little person, a little creature inside of me trying to get out. I know how this sounds, believe me. When I, when I saw it, it seemed to disappear just a few moments later, and then I quickly convinced myself I was just tired. The rash went away again. I, I prayed, literally I prayed that it was all over. And for a few days it was, but then the rash came back, this time on my upper leg. That same burning feeling. Now I was afraid to look at it. I was afraid I'd see those little tiny hands again. How crazy does all this sound? Told patient I thought it sounded terrifying, but not crazy. I told her how stress and fatigue and trauma could make us all interpret what we're seeing in interesting and unusual ways. Obviously, stress and fatigue does not tend to make one envision tiny hands under the skin, but I wanted to make her feel like this was not that abnormal. I wanted to gain her trust and hear more. She smiled at me. I kept trying to ignore it, she said, but then I could feel it again, that feeling of something inside of me trying to get out. I finally decided to go see my doctor, but of course, when I showed up at my doctor's office, the feeling went away and there was no rash again, just irritated skin from where I'd been scratching myself. The next day, and this was just a few days ago, after a terrible night of horrible dreams about something tearing me apart, I barely slept at all. My husband left for work, and I, I was just so desperate for it to stop, and I, and I did something stupid. I grabbed the sharpest knife we could, had in the kitchen, and, well, it just it came back again, but my, my shoulder this time, and I, and, and I tried to cut it out. Patient says this with an eerie calm. I started, to ask, oh, I started to ask what happened next, but our time was up, and I had to make other rounds. We'll continue conversation later. Day two, second session with second session with patient. She seemed in good spirits today, bright, attentive, made slight conversation about the food quality, other patients, noticed new bright red cuts on her left arm. The cuts formed a distinctive pattern like the tines of a fork. No half patient silverware privileges revoked as they present a danger to her. After a few minutes, I asked the patient what happened after she cut her shoulder. It hurts so much. It hurts so much to drive the knife into my skin to try and pull my skin back to look for whatever it is. I, I, I couldn't. I, I, did, I don't know. Patient seems at a loss for words to describe what she attempted to do. I didn't hit any major vein or artery, but still, I, I just bled so much. And I was screaming, just get out! Just get out! I thought for a second I could see something move away from where I'd cut. Patient paused, sighed. I drove myself to the hospital. Obviously, they were concerned, and then I had to try and explain the whole thing to my husband when he got home from work, and how can you explain what I just told you? He told me I had to get help. Said he didn't want me to hurt myself again. I didn't want to hurt myself. I just I just wanted it out, but it was still in, and I knew it would show up again soon. I knew no matter what I did, it would just come back. It would always come back. Patient now looked at me accusingly. You think I'm crazy, don't you? Of course you do. Everyone does. My husband does. It's why he drove me here, why he admitted me, but I'm telling you it's in me. I can feel an itch now on my hip. I can show you. Told patient that she needed to remain fully clothed for our sessions. She seemed slightly offended. We talked for a moment about her showing me when it manifested in a more easily visible area. Patient seemed disheartened, insulted. The session ended shortly thereafter. 
Plain to see that husband was not unduly pressured, uh, had not unduly pressured patient into hospitalization. Patient clearly suffers some sort of hallucination or psychosis that has led to and may continue to lead to additional dangerous self-harm. Considering which means of intervention to proceed with. Lobotomy? Day three. Met with name redacted. Patient's roommate. Consulting on an unrelated case. Meeting went normally until patient's roommate looked at me and asked me if I was patient's doctor. I told her that I was. Asked her if she had any information that she would like to share. She quickly shook her head and began rocking back and forth. She said, I saw it. And then she didn't speak the rest of the session. She seemed scared. What did she see? Day five. Recommended patient for lobotomy procedure. I know we'll have to tell her, but I am putting it off. Patient's roommate, name redacted, was found today in the showers and unfortunately not alive. It's a bit unclear exactly how she died. Initial investigation found her esophagus to be punctured in various places. Autopsy forthcoming. I overheard from one of the orderlies that they said they'd heard that it looked like some kind of small animal, perhaps a rat, had clawed its way out of her. Seems impossible. Get out? How did it, how did it get in? I'm sure the autopsy results will dispel this nasty and uncomfortable rumor. Day 8. Lobotomy scheduled for today. Told patient this morning who looked at me with open-mouthed horror. You think I'm crazy, she said. You think I'm making it all up? I'm not making it all up. Patient started to scream. I called in nurses for restraints and they managed to get her down. Look, she screamed. Just look at it. I noticed her forearm had a terrible rash that stretched from wrist to elbow. And just for a moment, her skin did seem to undulate. I thought I saw just for a brief moment the small outline of a tiny hand claw. Patient is clearly pulling me into her delusion. I've been thinking about it far more than I should. Hearing the rumor regarding how her roommate died has certainly gotten my imagination going, and now I am projecting what she is claiming to witness. I must work harder to remain focused on what is possible and ignore everything else, as it will only distract from the best course of treatment. Day one post-operation. Operation complete. It seems to have gone well. Patient is unconscious. Day three post-operation. Patient still asleep, in and out of consciousness. I found written on a piece of paper on patient's bedside table, I think it's gone. The unintelligible has left me. My mind is at ease, but numb. I find it hard to think. Oddly, the note is not in patient's handwriting. Have to check to see if handwriting can change after a procedure, although it is a miracle that she's writing at all. Perhaps indicates quick recovery and good decision on my part. Day 4, post-operation. Another note on patient's bedside table. Some same new handwriting as before. I miss unintelligible. I am so lonely without it. It's so quiet. Again, I thought for a moment. I saw movement beneath her skin at the sight of a new rash. I must work harder to control my mind around her. Day 7 post-operation. Asked patient who was awake and lucid now about the notes on bedside table. She claimed to have no memory of writing them. Went to get patient lorazepam as she seemed very agitated. When I returned, I heard her speaking to herself. I am a shell. I will be filled again soon. Unintelligible. Waits to return. Then I'll be full again. I won't be alone. Day 9 post-operation. Nurse went into patient's room and reported back to me. Patient now constantly talking to herself, saying the following in the steady monotone of the lobotomized. Unintelligible. Unintelligible. Back. It's back. Unintelligible. Unintelligible. I don't want it. I don't want it. Help. Help me. Help. Please. Help. Help me. Nurse reported seeing a nasty rash on the back of the patient's neck. She said it looked like something was moving underneath the skin and left to go grab the nearest doctor making rounds. When this doctor arrived, she found nothing wrong with the patient's neck. No rash, no movement. 
The nurse reportedly was so shaken up by the incident, she went home sick for the rest of the day. Maybe my mind was not playing tricks on me after all. Could there actually be something moving underneath her skin? We'll contact a parasitic specialist in Boston and make some inquiries. Day 13 post-operation. For the past few days, patient seems to be making progress. Boston Contact is doing research into rare and unusual parasites that may present symptoms I've described. I've been awaiting more information which now may not matter. Staff have not reported any more unintelligible talking, no talking at all, but patients smiled at professionals who entered rooms and, and answered questions by nodding or shaking her head. Wanted to have a counseling session earlier but was, a, one, but was unable to due to heavy caseload. Entered patient's quarters this morning to evaluate progress. Patient was gone. Asked attendants if patient was receiving visitors this morning. Attendant said she hadn't seen patient since the night before. Reported to police and family had staff search the grounds from top to bottom and no one can find patient. Can a recent lobotomy patient hide out in the woods and live for more than a few days? I fear we may not recover patient alive. Day 27 post-operation. Patient's remains have just been found. She never made it out into the woods. She made it into the tunnels. Seems to have gotten lost and never made it back out. Cause of death seems to have been self-inflicted. Patient was found with a knife taken from the kitchen. I was allowed to see the body. It was a sight I wish I could forget. Her stomach was slashed badly. And there, in the middle of several apparent knife cuts, was what can only be described as a hole. It looked as if some small animal had torn its way inside of her or out of her. I immediately thought of those tiny little hands. I thought about her roommate. The autopsy report was never released. The rumor is that the now-classified report was sent to the FBI, and the reports of this autopsy will likely be classified as well. Day 28, post-operation. I didn't sleep well last night. I couldn't stop thinking about what might have been inside the patient. Now, I have a rash on my left <gasps> calf. I've never had skin problems before, never had a rash like this. I can't stop thinking about what the patient said she saw. My rash feels hot. I find myself waiting to see little clawed hands trying to dig out of me. I'm scared. Day 30, post-operation. I shouldn't be writing notes for this case anymore, but I don't know where else to write this. I know it's all related. I saw it. Pushing. The burning comes from the thing forcing its way to the surface. I want to tell someone, but I don't want to end up as a patient. I don't want a lobotomy myself. Who can I tell? Day 33, post-operation. I wish I knew someone who could help me. It's inside me. I tried to cut it out of my leg the other day and I hurt myself badly. Had to lie to the doctor about it being an accident. Took 52 stitches to close the wound. He said if I'd taken an extra 20 minutes to make it to the hospital, I would have bled out and died. I want it out. I need it out. I must get it out. No more entries were found in this file. The anonymous poster claims that no other files from this doctor, listed as J.A. Newell, were found in the ruins of Danvers State Hospital that they're aware of. Oh my God, is that creepy? Mm-hmm. Holy hell. Yeek. Yeek. Yeah, just a... Uh, There's so many terrifying elements to that whole thing. Wow. I like that it was uh, just... <laughs> I like that it was just, again, just different. I always say that. But it is so... You're going to have to drink every time you say different. Is it really? Am I really? Uh, probably. Oh, probably. I didn't know that's a thing already. Um... It's just, it, uh, yeah, I just like it when, and the, and the longer it goes on, scared to death, uh, the more I like it when we come across a story that doesn't remind me of other stories. Not that that, um, like, I like the classics, too. Oh, like, who like does I'll, it? Yeah, yeah, I'll never get tired of a haunted house story. You know, I've said that before. But this one, I'm like, ugh, like, what the fuck is this? Oh, yeah, I, I have so many. I, I want to see your pictures, <clears throat> and then we can discuss, because there are so many pieces of it that feel plausible, even to, like, in your just everyday life, like... 
Excuse uh, me. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. Weird <laughs> little, little sound. Little burpy burp. Um, but yeah, let's let's see photos okay. and then we can dive into the the scary elements of the story. This first one is a pic of Danvers State Hospital from the early 20th century. Oh yeah. So that's it looks that, like a castle almost. Yeah, and it has this. So that'll be like the main building, and then almost like um spokes radiating radiating out from the center of a wheel, like those wings. It's, mm-hmm. I, I should have. I guess maybe I should have found. I ran out of like pictures. I got ten pictures for today, which is kind of like the max we usually do. Oh wait, because of that's Instagram's all carousel. Carousel. Yeah. But, um, but if you get like an aerial view, mm-hmm. it'll have these main buildings and then these wings radiating out, well, kind just, of going back. Yeah, I, I almost even think of like the White House. You know, okay. mm-hmm, or, or mm-hmm. just any very large yeah. structure like that, mm-hmm. you know, built within a certain time and the, frame. And they're high ceilings, mm-hmm. you know, lots of windows, lots of doors that can kind of like open up to uh, to the outside air. Mm-hmm. But maybe just because they've been featured in so many horror movies, that kind right. of building, that now my association is anything but like peaceful and tranquil. It's just like scary. Yeah. Just, it seems it seems like a. Like uh, next to a Victorian house, mm-hmm. the Kirkbride type asylums are like the classic imagery for me for for uh, ghosts and things. Yeah, yeah. Um, this next w- uh, picture is lobotomy illustration. Mm-mm. So just kind of showing Mm-mm. that's the ice pick style lobotomy. Who the fuck came up with this? Oh, that guy. I said his name. Oh, he was the inventor of the lobotomy? Well, no, not of the um, uh, lobotomy, but he came up with this style of lobotomy that <laughs> was like a, an improvement I don't know that I have the uh, the inventor written down in my notes. Oh, I didn't know he notes. just knew. I w- nah, I'd, have to, I'd just be guessing. But why, why, why did anyone ever fucking think that was a good idea? Well, what's crazy is as uh, savage as this surgery is, it did sometimes work in a weird way where it's like they would tap that in through the – they would have to break through this thin bone, your, yeah, like one of the yeah. orbital bones, and they would just go right in the corner of your eye like that, tap that piece of metal, which was like an ice pick, into your – uh, you know, prefrontal lobe, and then wiggle it around, <laughs> and it would just sever certain connections. Well, sure, and and it would just you know create people who were. I mean, sometimes actually there was a, there's a guy I came across when I was researching lobotomies, who was one of the youngest lobotomy patients. He got one when he was like 10 years old. He was like behaviorally out of control, and then he did write a book and have a successful career and stuff. Get the fuck out of here! Yeah, because it, and and the results varied so much because it you know it wasn't like a real exact surgery. They weren't going in with a laser. I mean, they were getting those, the same area roughly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah, they're wiggling it around. So you're not going to be ex- severing the same connections every surgery. Let me ask you this. Are they yeah. outlawed? Are they? I don't know. Because, because I'm I just, don't think so. Well, because I'm thinking that with the advancements in modern medicine. This kind, I think, is outlawed. Yes. But lobotomies as a hmm. as a practice. Because I don't I'm, know. I'm just thinking about how skilled surgeons are now. And like, if you think about, we can do, let's see if I can say the word. We can do surgeries laparoscopically. I don't know if I said that right. I struggle with that word so Microscopically? Much. No, no. La- laparoscopically. Oh. L- lapiscop- I can't say it. I don't know. It. But it's like when they the go in like, through the belly button. Oh, got it. Right? Or like uh, sometimes they do like tiny incisions in the groin and they yeah. go up and do things. It's like there are all of these things that we can do now that we. I would wonder if it is plausible that we could do a modern day lobotomy precisely or almost yeah, precisely. Like, you know, the way that um, neurosurgeons can crack a skull open now and they've got these little teeny mm-hmm. tiny cameras mm-hmm. or if you have you ever had um an upper or lower endoscopy Mm-mm. i mean it's fascinating because you know i mean you're sedated but 
you know, they're putting a, a tiny camera down your esophagus right. to see what. So if if all of those things can be done, and I get the brain is a very different organ than like the stomach, right? Yeah. I mean, this controls everything. But I just wonder if it already exists or if there's research around it, because it mm. it would seem like maybe. I mean, I don't know who's signing up for that, but. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know I, yeah, I have if they're it. around anymore or not. I have a note to to dig into that. I got it. Okay, yeah. Joe, tell us. You can still get them, Whoa. but it's last Russia? resort. Okay. Yeah, no one, no, you, they can't force Damn. it in prisons or wards anymore. Right. Uh, they have to opt into it. Damn, you can still get it, though, You huh? do every other option. Yeah, at least from what I could find. What Does it say, Joe, like, uh, what would be the purpose? Like, for is it for mental health or? I'm sure, like, yeah. severe, like, if you're having really, like, seizures, like, yeah. life-threatening seizures, certain things where, yeah. I don't know. And then Agum Monet. <laughs> sure. E G A U is his first name. He, he invented E-G- it. I don't even know how to. Sp- uh, yeah. Agao? Agao? I, I have to Agu? look that up. I don't know. Agu? I don't know. I'm going to go with Agu. Wow. Uh, that's Fascinating. crazy. Yeah, yeah. I have one more illustration uh, of a lobotomy. And again, it's just like like they show like the angle is a little different there. And but it it's makes so me nauseous crazy. to look at it, so honestly. I could, just uh, you talking about it, my stomach was turning. And then, yeah. And then this, this next one, uh, this is uh, some of the apartments that were, you know, Boy, I love converted. how beautiful. I know they did a good job converting some of the it old is. Danvers buildings into these new apartments. And I mean, then, I'm not living there. <laughs> Although, if I didn't know the history, yeah. I'd be like, oh, this is, yeah, it, cool. it looks like a resort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great staged photo. Yeah. Yeah. That's from the real estate company that, like, you know, designed it. Yeah. Uh, or development company. And then uh, this is, this last picture is just one of the original tunnels that still exists underneath these apartments. Ooh. How creepy. It, it looks like that now. I think so. Ish. I mean, I do. I now ish. Yes, yes. Oh man, they should have haunted houses down there. Uh, I wonder, like liability wise, it may not, you know, be very safe to take people down there, like because of a possible collapse. I I doubt there's a lot of upkeep. Well, I'm going to say this: if if there's possible <laughs> collapse, then why are they letting people live in the apartments above it? Well, that can be different. That can be different where it's like just um, it could collapse and not affect the the if it's if it's deep enough down. Yeah, it could absolutely. You know, it's like like when a mine collapses, it's not like the structures on the surface on above the mine are right. really affected. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. First of all. Yeah. Okay. I've been thinking about just the name, the Danvers. Is is this like? Has it been a setting of other horror movies? Why does the word Danvers? What? It's a very famous. Uh, you know early kind of psychiatric institution in America. And, you know, when you worked out in Boston, I mean, Danvers is just outside. It's actually, it's like a suburb now of Boston. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's only about 20 miles from downtown Boston. I kept like in my head, I was like, okay, it, what's the name of that city? But it's like, because it's something with a D um, where it takes place. Mm. And I, it like dairy. Oh, Dairy, Maine? Like yeah. the Stephen King said? I know, but I just like, I kept going in my brain. I feel like... Mm. I don't know. Maybe there's a character whose last name is Danvers, but it is it is definitely used somewhere in some horror movie. I think something. I think I might have told a story where it was mentioned early on too. It's not that. Huh. Okay. It's not that. Uh, but yes, I did. I was living and working in Boston for like four to six months, and I love Boston. It's such Me a too. great city. Yeah, it is so fucking expensive. Mm-hmm. I remember being there. It was like two thousand one, two thousand two. I was yeah. out there working on this Matthew McConaughey movie, and. It was, I was living in LA normally, and I thought that Boston was expensive then. Right. So in, in comparison, because LA is no cheap place to live. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. Um, okay. And then, the, about, okay, when you start talking about how it was um, 
itching right mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. Monroe has really bad eczema oh, in, yeah. in the crooks of her arm. And I was like, Common oh, spot. oh my God. Mm-hmm. And it does, it gets like discolored and mm-hmm. it gets really irritated. And then she uses what she calls James Bond lotion. James Bond. Is that what she calls it? Because it's gold bond. And oh. she keeps calling She's she like, calls it James Bond in accent. She goes, I need some more James Bond lotion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. And then the, the last thing that really, the, the, the scariest thing about that whole entire story is that obviously mental health is very real and there are things that can happen in our lives. We can have traumatic events that cause us to have a massive shift in the way that our brain works, PTSD, Mm -hmm. various things. It is so terrifying to think like you and I are in such a healthy, loving relationship. Mm -hmm. If something happened to me, let's just say um, a bad car accident that I caused and I've, I've killed someone, vehicular manslaughter, something like that. Right. And it changes how I, view the world and I start to go a little bit nuts mm-hmm. and you don't believe me. Mm-hmm. And I get rid of you within days. No, I'm, I'm being serious oh. right now. It is so scary to think that like something real could happen to yeah. you or, or not. Right, I, I know mean, it is Sometimes scary. just like your chemical composition can just fucking change in an instant. Uh, you know, it's terrifying. And it's terrifying to think that the, I mean, her husband, mm-hmm. he loved her. I mean, to me, mm-hmm. it was like so obvious. He did what he thought was best for mm-hmm. her. So you're doing this and you're thinking that you're doing the best thing for them. And then you're just fucking trapped there. Uh, I, yeah. And that it, happened. That's happened to so many people. But I mean, yes. what a traumatic thing. Yeah. To, to have to put somebody you love in a home like that uh-huh. where, you know, it's not, you know, like some utopia. Right. But you also know that it's too dangerous for them to not be monitored and you can't mm-hmm. do it. It's it's like the what um not least evil what's that phrase uh the lesser of two evils lesser of two evils thank you yeah yeah exactly yeah and it, it to me like just especially for me because I have struggled with mental health at various mm-hmm. phases of my life I mean it's no secret right I do I do therapy and all yeah. that but it has had more extreme moments and yeah. I've talked about it here when I was a teenager and it, uh, attempted suicide. And when I went to the hospital, you know, they pump your stomach, they do all these things, and you're on 24-hour watch, right? And my mom, my dad wasn't really in the picture at the time, and they wanted to send me to a mental health facility. And my mom begged and pleaded with them. She was like, I will do everything. I'll take her to every doctor's appointment. Because she had heard that this facility in Cleveland, that you would just go, and it was like um, that Angelina Jolie movie. Like, you're just in this fucking... What is it, Girl Interrupted or whatever? I never saw that, but yeah. You're just in this facility and you're just zombified. Mm. And my mom was petrified that that would happen. And thank God, because years later I met people who were in that facility just in various conversations. Yeah. Not fucking good. It's a house of horrors for some of them. Yeah. And my mom my mom just thought she was like, I'll take her to this doctor. I mean, and I think that she had to really check in with the doctors afterwards. Mm-hmm. We were already broke. She missed a ton of work to do it. So I can see how it happens. Mm-hmm. But what a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Truly a living nightmare. Yeah. Ugh. I was picturing you finding a journal like in the, in the, in our house. And all of a sudden it's me. Just, I've been monitoring you like, um, you know, day 368. She seems more stable today. Day 368 post, post op. <laughs> <laughs> just post just like, just, I'm just monitoring like the whole relationship. And, and you find all these instances of like called, called hospital today, spoke to them about intake. Um, still the same. <laughs> and they're like, like I've been wavering numerous times. <laughs> You're like, what the hell? You're like. She burnt. She burned dinner again tonight. Burned it again. Doesn't seem, no, doesn't seem to understand how stove works. <laughs> <laughs> seem too angry about it when I criticize <laughs> later. Uh, <sighs> before we move on to the next story, I do want to say when you brought up Monroe saying James Bond. Yeah. 
Last night when we were getting frozen yogurt, the four of us, me, you, Kyler, Monroe, <laughs> every once in a while Monroe makes these great quotes. She is a funny, She's so funny. funny She's kid. intentionally funny and unintentionally oh, funny. so great. And uh, and I was like, uh, I was just really happy with my Froyo combination. And I was like, oh, that was perfect. And she goes, mm-hmm. She goes, muy caliente. <laughs> and I was like, I was like what? <laughs> and she's like, well, I mean, it was real good. I'm like, no, you just said real hot. She meant muy delicioso. Yeah, she meant either muy delicioso or actually she said later she meant muy bien. Like, very good. And I, I wish I would have not corrected her. Oh, and every God. time she thought she wanted to say very good in Spanish, she's like, muy caliente. Oh, she's God. like, that froyo is so hot. She is so funny. Well, <laughs> I, I came to her defense, though, because I had a smoothie bowl for lunch yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it was so cold in the restaurant. I was mm-hmm. at the wellness bar. If you live locally, it's the best. And I was there. And it was cold in there. And then... And the bowl was particularly super cold and like a moron. I blew on it as if it would, I don't know, make it not cold. Like that works for hot and cold things. You just blow on them to bring them to like a room temperature. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. Now it's time to switch from a longer narrative to a smattering of different accounts all connected to the same place. Ready to head to England. Let's do it. Hi-ho, cheerio. Before we cross the Atlantic, time for our in-between story sponsor break. Thank you for supporting the sponsors who support us. Thanks for listening, creeps and peepers. Fair amount of historical setup again on this one. Uh, Alton Towers has quite the unusual history. From Iron Age Fortress to, cruci- to, cru- yeah, blah, blah, blah. to Crusader era. Good job. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> lavish manner to arguably the most popular 21st century amusement park in England. Alton Towers has lived a lot of different lives. And a lot of different people have lived and died on his grounds. A huge, beautiful, gothic-looking mansion now rests on its 800-acre grounds, which now also house the most popular theme park in England. All located just outside the village of Alton, or Alton in the uh, picturesque county of Staffordshire, England. The first structure built on the grounds is thought to have been constructed way back around 100 BCE as an Iron Age fort. Wow, that's old. Then eight centuries later, around 700 CE, the Saxon king, uh, Sealred of Mercia, built a separate fortress on the hill inside the grounds, and then the king of Wessex besieged the site in 716 CE. Sealred, a uh, little-known ruler, not well-liked by the monks of his kingdom, St. Boniface wrote that he carried out the violation and seduction of nuns and the destruction of monasteries. So he's a, he was a naughty boy. He'd be poisoned during a feast. St. Boniface writing that as he died, he was gibbering with demons and cursing the priests of God. Uh, When he fought the king of Wessex, the battle waged on the grounds of Alton Towers caused such a great loss of life that the area, now a water garden, was given the name Slain Hollow. Who knows how many hundreds died violently on the grounds where roller coasters now sit. Many of the next century's records have been lost to history. By the 12th century, the large uh, estate had been given to Bertram II as a reward for his work in the Crusades. The Talbot family then took over the land in 1412, starting with the first Earl of Shrewsbury, Sir John Talbot. In 1753, the fifth Earl, Charles Tablet, built the mansion that you can see today and created one of the finest landscape gardens in the world. The land stayed with the Talbots until 1920. In 1924, the remaining part of the estate and house was sold to a group of local businessmen who formed Alton Towers Limited. The grounds were restored, open to the public. Parts of the old stately manor were converted into cafes and toilets for public use. And then after publicly shutting down during World War II to be used as an officer training unit, following the war, the amusement park that lives there today was slowly built up, ride by ride, into the massive, massive rides and shops you can currently visit. People now flock to Alton Towers every year by the thousands. It averages anywhere from two to three million visitors a year. Wow. Uh, so, uh, some come primarily for the rides, some come mainly for the historical buildings and grounds, and some come for the ghosts. A number of paranormal investigators have inspected the area throughout the years. 
in almost all of claimed encounters. Not surprising since Alton Towers has seen a lot of death and tragedy throughout its long history. Huge battles, murders, suicides, even a witch's curse. What follows is a collection of some of the most well-known and fascinating of Alton Towers' paranormal stories. Time now for the tale of the dark lore of Alton Towers. Starting with the Chained Oak. The Curse of the Chained Oak is one of the most famous stories from Alton Towers. It's a 1,300-year-old oak tree wrapped in huge metal, tr- uh, huge metal chains. Why in God's name would an oak tree be wrapped in chains? The origin legend begins in the third decade of the 19th century. On a bitterly cold and rainy night in 1821, the fifth Earl of Shrewsbury, Charles Talbot, or Talbot, was traveling home from London. He was just nearing the old oak when his carriage screeched to a halt. Someone was blocking his return home. Upon disembarking, he was greeted by an old beggar woman and at, who asked him if he could spare any change. The Earl, who by all accounts was known locally as a good, kind man, was tired this particular evening, exhausted from his long journey and irritable from the cold. He flew into a rage, ordering that the woman be cast aside or run over. As Charles got back into the carriage, the old woman screamed after him, declaring his family would be cursed and that every time a branch fell from the old oak tree she, would, uh, she stood beside, another member of his family would die. Ugh. Charles initially thought nothing of the strange old woman's words and returned home. He proceeded, he proceeded to warm himself by the fire, got into bed for the night as the storm outside he'd just ridden through raged on. A large branch fell from the oak tree that same night. And surely enough, the following day when he woke, Charles received news that a family member had passed suddenly and unexpectedly before dawn. He thought of the old woman's words but still refused to give in to superstition. But then a few days later, another branch fell from the great tree and another family member died in a riding accident the same day. The Earl no longer s- dismissed the old woman's curse and afraid of losing more people whom he loved, he wrapped the huge tree in chains in order to stop any more branches from falling and the chains remain to this day. Wow. And around this cursed tree, there have been many ghostly sightings. Beginning in the early 1900s, rumors of the tree being used in pagan rituals began to swirl, rituals that allegedly included animal, possibly human sacrifice. Several people connected to the grounds, either owners, residents, or workers, have reported witnessing shadowy apparitions and also feeling some sort of sentient but unseen presence near the tree. As haunted as the tree may be, it is not supposedly the most haunted location on the grounds of Alton Towers. There is supposedly, or there is a supposedly haunted shop in the Great Hall of the Alton, Alton Towers Manor that claims that honor. A woman named Sheila, the grandmother of current, uh, the current owners, for a long time owned the gift shop in the Great Hall. Being the main gift shop and restaurant, this has always been the heart of the amusement park and sees thousands of people in and out all throughout the day. And while no customers are coming and going after hours, it's reportedly a very active place at night as well. It is said to be home to multiple spirits, perhaps even a poltergeist. One of the most curious accounts I found uh, from the gift shop was an incident involving the uncle of a former owner, Mr. Nigel Harris. One morning in the early 1970s, Nigel was opening up the gift shop for the day when he noticed on the counter a series of random numbers that had been cut out of a book in a, uh, and placed in a line. The numbers were 17363335. He couldn't for the life of him understand what the numbers could mean. A cryptic, a cryptic, Jesus Christ, I cannot fucking talk today. It's, okay. it's driving me crazy. Just take a second. Uh, a cryptic prank being pulled on him by one of the other members of his family, perhaps. No one would admit to it. He felt curiously compelled to keep the pieces of paper, and that he did. His whole life, in fact. Nigel moved to the beautiful Spanish city of, oh man, Tenerife, 
I think, uh, in the Canary Islands in 1977. And that same year, beautiful place, by the mm-hmm. way. And in that same year, he witnessed the worst air accident the world had ever seen when two jets collided in the fog. Ooh. It took him two days to realize that on Pan Am flight 1736, there were 335 people confirmed dead, 1736335. No way. Yeah, the number on his note. Uh, the collision on Pan Am flight 71336 and KLM flight 4805 on the uh, uh, Tenerife runway is still the deadliest aviation accident in non-military aviation history. 583 passengers and crew died. That's crazy. Throughout the 60s and 70s, the Harris family would invite paranormal investigators up from London, sleep in the towers themselves, go to extreme lengths to try and get to the bottom of the enormous amount of poltergeist activity in the main gift shop and restaurant. They never officially did get to the bottom of any of it, but they did witness a great deal. The activity started off rather small. Sheila had a row of ducks on a shelf that she would always arrange in a certain order. One day, she came into the gift shop in the morning to find they'd all switched places. She put them back in their proper places. The next morning, it happened all over again. According to Granny Sheila, there were also an assortment of toy soldiers that liked to get out of their box during the night and arrange themselves into various scenes of war. Perhaps so weird. Perhaps the strangest paranormal event in the Harris in Harris family lore was an incident involving some very expensive jewelry. The jewelry in question was kept in a large glass cabinet that always remained locked until, of course, a customer wished, uh, wished to purchase something. The only key to this cabinet was kept on a small chain Sheila would always wear around her neck. One morning, Sheila went to open up the gift shop and then noticed that all the jewelry in the still-locked glass cabinet had been tampered with, but not in a way a human could do, even if the cabinet hadn't been locked. The solid gold items had been mangled. They'd been twisted and torn in an unexplainable act of vandalism. The family wondered if they'd inadvertently angered some spirit. More recently, Dorothy, a sweet old lady who used to run the restaurant area, reported seeing the apparition of a woman, and then at least for a time, was constantly plagued by someone, the feeling of someone, uh, or something stealing the smaller items from her kitchen, like something watching her stealing these items, butter dishes, cups, spice pots would vanish into thin air, and then appear again days, weeks, months later. These events merely intrigued her, then another event scared her. One morning, similar to Nigel, she had arrived to find letters cut out of a children's book, arranged on the floor, and at the bottom of a a bookshelf to spell Dolly. Dorothy had never told anyone at Alton Towers that as a child, other children who would tease her would call her Dolly. No way. And she hated it. Uh, She was convinced a mischievous spirit was messing with her. Now let's back up about 50 years for another strange bit of lore. George Noke, Alton Towers gardener, worked the grounds nearly all his life. And early in the 20th century, George started to see a man walking around the gardens in medieval dress, often accompanied by a big black dog. For years, he assumed that owners had hired the man to walk around the resort in fancy dress to impress visitors. (laughs) George tried to say hello to the man on numerous occasions throughout the years, but each time the man eluded him, vanishing into the bushes, quickly disappearing when George looked the other way. It was only after decades of seeing this same man looking exactly the same every time, dressed exactly the same, that it finally occurred to George that the man had never aged. He came to the conclusion, both paranormal and logical in this example, that the man and his dog had to have been ghostly apparitions. That's weird to me, just that we dawn on him so many years later. Right. And then he would never say anything to anyone? Yeah. Who's that guy? And now one final Alton Towers encounter. We return to the gift shop. One evening, this is a weird one. One evening, a woman known as uh, Auntie Annie, uh, like the pretzels, uh, was doing the stock take in the gift shop. It was dark, and the place had an eerie feeling about it this night. She was trying to hurry, get out of there as soon as possible. She was crouching behind the counter when suddenly she caught a strong scent in the air, a Victorian kind of peppermint smell. 
It was silent in the shop apart from the wind moaning outside. Then all of a sudden there was a loud bang immediately behind her. Uh, Annie about jumped out of her skin. She spun around to her astonishment. She saw a book had appeared on the counter. The title of this book, she will never forget. It was called A Stranger is Watching (gasps) by Mary Higgins Clark. I know that book. Oh, really? Yeah. She'd never seen this book before. It had definitely not been on the counter moments earlier. Sufficiently shaken up, she fumbled for her keys, locked up the building quickly uh, as she could, ran out to her car. Just as she started her engine, for reasons uh, she can't explain, she felt an intense burning desire to go back and get the book, which she did. Then, once again, runs out of the building as quickly as she can and heads home. When Annie gets home, she places the book on her own bookshelf and then, over time, largely forgets about it. Years later, though, she becomes convinced that an evil spirit from the towers had attached itself to this book, tricked her into bringing the entity into her home. She came to believe this book, or whatever was attached to it, was responsible for night terrors her daughter Emma was experiencing growing up. One day, exhausted from having his own sleep continually disturbed by his waking daughter, Annie's husband, Andrew, decides he's going to throw the book into the bonfire. The whole family watches the book burn down to nothing but ashes. Then a week later, while cleaning out the garage, Annie opens a dusty old box And there on top, as she opens the box up, is the same book a stranger is watching. And he throws the book back into the box, afraid for reasons she didn't fully understand, to try and destroy it again. Oh, my God. Then a few years later, her daughter, Emma, has a school project where she has to interview a member of the family about a strange experience. Naturally, she interviews her mom about this book. Emma's teacher is so fascinated by the story, she asks if she can borrow the book. No! Annie, afraid to upset whatever might be attached to the book, agrees on the provision that she take good care of it and return it, and then Annie never sees the book again. The teacher who borrows it claims that something prompted her to completely destroy the book before even getting it home. Or is what whatever is attached to the book, is that what it wanted her to say? Has the entity Annie once brought her into her home now found a new home and a new soul to torment? I wish I could interview that teacher today. And these are just some of the many paranormal stories that make up Alton Tower's paranormal lore. Over the years, many paranormal investigators and even the police department have tried to get to the bottom of all the ghostly goings-on around Alton Towers. None have succeeded, but nearly all who have visited have experienced something. Some have experienced more than they ever wanted to. A member of Britain's long-running most haunted TV ghost hunting, uh, you know, it's like a TV show, this uh, Britain's most haunted, their ghost hunting team, a member claimed to be the subject of some sort of violent attack in the midst of a night full of all kinds of poltergeist activity. Countless tourists have also claimed to see apparitions. Some have claimed to hear ghostly children laughing. There's even the ghost of an old lady said to haunt the toilets, uh, <laughs> one of many who apparently are not happy that their land has been turned into a theme park. And you can go on the theme park's rides today... Maybe if you do, you'll find you have an extra unexpected and unseen member of your party taking the twist, turns, and drops with you. Yeah, that book. My mom was so into Mary Higgins Clark books when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's almost like a James Patterson kind of thing. It's very formulaic. There's always, I mean, hers are a little bit more spooky. Who's the other one? Tammy Hogue. There's you know the whole sort of like Mm -hmm. era of um, authors. I'm making this up, but this is my summation of what I watched my mom do. Sure. Uh, all maybe like late 80s to like late 90s, that decade-ish. Mm-hmm. And my mom would just like go through them. And and then she always loved a, a little bit scary, but not like full-on scary. Yeah. I mean, it would just be too much for her sensitive soul. But I read so many of those books. Let me call you sweetheart. Like all this. And they had, you know, they would have a little bit of like, I don't even want to say sex, but like a more than romantic, like a little bit of like racy romance. And sure, there's like a little sure. bit of spookiness. And oh yeah, I know that book. That's a Funny. fucking terrifying title to show I, up. I know the, the of title. All the yeah. ones. Yeah. Strangers oh my God. watching you. 
Why couldn't it have been let me call you sweetheart? <laughs> is that well, I don't know, maybe books? that would be worse. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, a few pictures. This first one is a painting of Alton Towers from sometime in the late 19th century. That's way bigger than I thought it was going to be. It's huge. Yeah. Uh, this next one, uh, some recent photos of Alton Towers, of the uh, cool buildings there. That's real scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with those dark clouds overhead. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly a filter on that, but yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, and then uh, this next picture, old photo of the gardens, old black and white photo. Oh, cool. I like I'm, those hedges where you yes. can walk underneath them and they're just like, they wrap around. It always makes me think of The Secret Garden. Is that a movie or something? Yes, a book and a movie. Have you never? Mm-hmm. It's a classic. I've heard of it, but never watched or read it. Okay, I'm putting it on the list. <laughs> uh, this next one, the the Chained Oak, the infamous Chained Oak. It's hard to, like, you can see that chain running right down the middle. Oh, so there's just a chain on it now. Well, now, yeah, and in recent years, like in the last, like, 56 years, you know, it's, it is so fucking old. But, yeah. like, more of the branches have broken and, you know. So the, more people are dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know, like, that guy who got cursed I is long if, dead. Like, well, yes, but I wonder if the, the if you mm. could trace your family history back to that. I don't know, yeah. It'd be scary. But yeah, just so weird that chain in the tree, and then and then this is just like one of the rides. I just thought it was a cool, kind of creepy looking ride. This is the Wicker Man roller coaster ride. The Wicker Man, mm-hmm. or Wickerman? <laughs> no, it's the Wicker Man. It's uh, from uh, the like pagan rituals. I know that's a really cool. Um, that's a cool like, design, right? No, it's not a goat head, like a ram's head, like a ram's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, made out of what's uh, supposed to replicate wicker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. And that's just a, that, that ride's a nod to the you know supposedly. Uh, I think there actually is some documentation of, like, you know, pagan rituals that have happened on the grounds over the years. I'm curious of what the actual amusement mm-hmm. park looks like. Did you—because I can't figure out how the um, I Alton Towers and the—is Alton Towers just demolished now? No, there's still how some of the old a- buildings. It's—I had a hard time, too. I wish I could have found a solid aerial photo, and maybe yeah. one exists, and I just didn't uh, didn't come across it. Yeah. But I did look for a while, and I could find lots of um, pictures of, like, individual rides yeah. and individual buildings on the ground, but I couldn't— Like a whole— a totality like, thing. I want, like, I a panoramic. For a map. I should look for, like—there there might be, like, an illustrated map, like the kind oh, yeah. you get at Disneyland. Yeah. So, uh, like, I was just thinking about our little amusement park here in North Idaho, mm-hmm. uh, Silverwood. Mm-hmm. And if someone was trying to explain that to me, I would have the same like, huh? What? Right. How, it's laid out it's, how? It's the it's such a the grounds are so huge. Yeah. My understanding just poking around there was that you have like the amusement park in one area, but then on other parts of the grounds, like the amusement park doesn't take up the whole acreage. Got it. And then there's, you know, another area that's full of like some of the historical buildings. And some of the historical buildings seem to be used for like a, like an eating hall and things like they've woven them into the park. I see, I see. Yeah. I was it's, imagine- I mean, it's a very big piece of land. <laughs> I was imagining like roller coasters going yeah. through buildings, like like oh, like a tunnel cut no, out. No, or- I don't think so. No. no, I don't think so. Clearly not. Yeah. Also, putting a tree into chains. In my mind, I was like, wouldn't the weight of the chains break the branches off? Uh, not if it's a huge tree. No. Okay. But yeah, I mean, a big I mean, old oak tree could uh, could carry a lot. So it doesn't have any little puny branches. Well, I mean, it's going to have some up at the top, but like the big branches coming off the bottom of the chain well, is yeah, going to be wrapped that. around. But if the whole tree was wrapped up. Oh, it wasn't like the whole tree. It's not like they wrapped every single branch, but like the oh. chain was wrapped through it. Oh, that'd, I, be, that'd be funny. That's a different, very different picture. If it's like the chain is wrapped around every single branch of the tree. I was imagining like here's a, the tree and here's the branches. And it's like, like, <laughs> like, like ribbon. Oh, no, huh? Like, like Christmas tree lights on a mm-hmm. Christmas tree? No. No. Okay. Well, then I misunderstood it's just, that it's whole just, thing. It's just draped on the tree. When you were talking about the toy soldiers being in like battle form, yeah. it made me think of Toy Story. Like, oh yeah, uh-huh. how the toys get up Woody in the middle and of the Buzz night. Lightyear, uh-huh. Yeah, and like the little green army men would get up and mm-hmm. like be in funny positions. Yeah, yeah, um, and and 
kids laughing. I have an element of kids laughing in my second story. There is something so inherently creepy about the, this has never happened to me, but just the idea mm-hmm. of being, if I was alone in this room working and I just heard a little giggle. <laughs> yeah. That is one of those oh, yeah. like horror movie tropes oh, that gets so you good. every fucking time. I do. I, I do think about in um, Pet Cemetery. I think Never about like it. yeah, and I, I know I've brought it up multiple times. Cause it is one of my favorite horror movies, but um, <laughs> it's such a good creepy scene when they're trying to find like they know this little kid Gage is back from the dead and not the same okay. in this movie, and he's like two years old, you know, and so it's like this little tiny figure, and you'll you know somebody will be looking for him, and you'll just see behind them this little kid is ha ha ha, like do his little like I can't do it oh, like his, his little laugh as he runs he... by, and then they just spin around, or he's like hiding like. You know, just just saying like um, just insane little kid things, his yeah. little kid voice, like, don't you want to play with me? <laughs> you know, as he's like has his little knife and stuff. And it's very creepy. Very, it's very disturbing. Very, very, very yeah. creepy. As I was working on my stories uh, the last couple of days, there was I think it was yesterday that I was in here. You were working out of the studio. I was in the studio. Joe was at lunch and it felt so creepy in here. Hmm. Have you noticed anything recently? Have you been I feeling? haven't. I, I, last, last couple Man. weeks have been good for me. Man, I was sitting at my desk and just like where my desk is positioned, I have my back towards the cutout in the wall mm-hmm. that leads to this half of the studio. And I just kept doing like a, okay, everything's okay. <laughs> everything's fine. Everything's it was, fine. It was really, really heavy yesterday. And then, and then I, I was just going to uh, address something. Like if we both seem a little yawny on this episode or recent episodes, we have had like, it's been very good. But we've had the craziest run of company yes. uh, that, that just came to an end. I think everybody gets that right now, though, because yeah, every- everything opened up. Yeah. And like if you live in a place that like maybe your family doesn't normally come to. Right. And they're like, you know what? During quarantine, I realized that I've never come to visit you. Uh-huh, and now uh-huh. I'm going to. Co- it's like and we live in a lake town. So everyone's yeah. like, oh, let's come hang out on the lake. It was that thing. And, and, and again, it's all been good. But we are just um, uh, going to catch up on sleep the next few days. Yeah. But it was this thing where, you know, you send out these things like, oh, yeah, you should come visit. And in my experience in life, sudden, almost no one takes you up on that. In my experience, they're like, yeah, maybe. But everyone's busy. Mm-hmm, and then like mm-hmm. the last like eight weeks. Like everyone has been like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. It's been weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend of hosting. Yep. And then I've gone to, I went to your mom's place. Like mm-hmm. they were here. Then I went there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just lots of and then, shuffling around. And then that kind of crams the uh, the workload into a smaller week. Right. All, right, right. Yeah. All good stuff. All good stuff. But just like, just, just a little low on sleep. A little, a little low on sleep. Yeah. And then we are going on a family vacation in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So and trying so to get ahead. Trying to get ahead so that on vacation, we only have to work four hours a day. Yeah. I just don't want to come, ac- I just don't want it to come across as lack of interest. Cause it's not, cause I was like, I was like pumped. I can just feel myself like stretching all the time, mm-hmm. but I'm like, no, I'm excited about these stories. I know that first story in particular, <laughs> I really loved that first story. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. I can always tell when you're um, a little bit sleepy because your mush mouth acts up. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's like, it's so frustrating because I'll, I'll prep and prep and prep and I'm like, okay, yep. Feel good. Yeah. And then if your brain is like, just like, like I dialed know, down to like 80%, then it just affects so many things. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also could be too, like. Who, who knew sleep was important? I mean, overrated. <laughs> uh, well, and I think too, like when you're, um, I don't know if this happens to you, but when I'm excited about the story, mm. but my energy's a little bit low, I'm almost trying to like compensate, yeah, overcompensate. and then I read a little mm-hmm. bit too fast, and my eyes are moving too fast, and it's like ah. Yeah, when I get really excited, like especially excited to tell a story, and then yeah. I make a little mistake, I'm just like, no, you're ruining it. You ruined everything. Oh, this is not how you envisioned it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, I'm excited to tell you these mm-hmm. stories. Do you have Trela or the Kitty Cat? I do. Or- I do have Trela, like my go-to, my standard. Oh. Okay, I know there's a trailer. Hold on, hold on. She's been hiding back here. Well, I'll get, I'll get two. 
Well, th- that's just another Layla because Trayla is the third Layla. I know. She can toss me, toss me this other Layla. This is the Layla with the broken neck. They're all broken. Well, she still smells. All their their little heads start to crack almost right right away. Oh, well, they're mentally ill. Oh, are they in love? Mm-hmm. Oh my God! Do you want to have a little Trayla wedding? Uh, <laughs> sure. I, I just suddenly reverted back to like seven year old me playing with dolls, making them get married. <laughs> Go into the chapel. And we're gonna get married. <laughs> okay. All right. Back back to the scary stuff. Okay. That was very cute. Okay. So recently, you and I were mm-hmm. uh, out. We live like right by a lake. We don't live on the lake, but right by a lake. Yeah. We were talking about what scares us in the water. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was. It was like we were um, out swimming. We were like in this bay, and then there's this little. Um, creek or yes, creek that yeah. runs off of it. A little inlet there, yep. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so the four of us, Dan and I, and the two kids, we were like going mm-hmm. out there, and everybody was on a floaty except for me. I'm a super strong, strong swimmer. I was like, I don't need a floaty. I'll be fine. I can swim the whole way. You were panicked that I was going to fucking drown or something. Mm-hmm. And then you did get a cramp later, so you know that was separate of that. That yep. was yep. totally different. I was diving in. It was hours later mm-hmm. after swimming a lot. So okay. okay. Anyways, but I. As we were going, all of a sudden, what I realized like really freaked me out is this like grass that grows up underneath. Uh-huh. Uh, I hate the way it feels when it touches you. I know it's called eel grass, and it like grows up, and there's little like microbiomes in there of like you know little like snails and like whatever lives down there, uh-huh. and it fucking freaked me out. I tr- I didn't even go all the way to the creek. I turned around and was like, I am out of here. Yeah. But you guys kept going, mm-hmm. and then later that day we were swimming, and you said that what freaks you out. So for me, it was like the feeling of something. Yeah, I was okay not being able to see. I didn't like the feeling, mm. but you freaked out. I don't out. like not being able to see. Yeah, that like sent you over the water. edge. Yeah, mm-hmm. you refused to even jump in. You, you were yeah, done. George, you were like, right. I can't do I, it. I jumped in earlier in the day, but when it got like later in the day and the light got a little lower, I was yeah. like, now nah, I'm good now. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, with all of that said, yeah. do you think you could ever do like those, uh, like a controlled deep dive? Like, could you ever get scuba certified or anything uh, like that? I don't know. I mean, may, it all depends on the water. If it was like really like bright, sunny, you know, Caribbean, mm, you know, certain, mm-hmm. where it's like you can really see down deep in the water. And, and by down deep, I mean like 20, 30 feet. Well, I mean like scuba, like they go like down. Like when they go really deep? Nope, no interest. Yeah, me either. Even if it was like a controlled environment, mm-hmm. even if it was a situation, and I know how bad SeaWorld is, but this is the only example I can come up with is like... Yeah. You know, you're in like a pool and a trainer brings a large animal. I'm like, mm-mm. Oh, you don't like the idea. I, I don't want to mm-hmm. like dive in there. I don't yeah. want one of them like rubbing up against me. Not even a freaking dolphin. Yeah. Like I'm out on that. Okay. Well, this story is taking us into an underwater system of navigational locks. Oh, okay. Which I think is really cool. So a completely controlled environment. But that doesn't mean that things obviously can't go wrong. Yeah. And I was just nervous like reading the description of how the lock system works and uh-huh. how they work on it it was just like i don't know and then if you add in the supernatural element of like being underwater in this lock system is like just thinking about that yeah gives me yeah. the heebie-jeebies so here we go uh the author entitled this story the lady of the locks Greetings, king and queen of the suck. To start with, like many other listeners, I'm a longtime lover of Dan's comedy. Thank you. In my current profession, I drive a lot for work and quickly found time suck. Hail Nimrod. (laughs) And being a self-admitted peeper myself, I naturally migrated over to scared to death. And you both have been exceptionally spoopy companions on my long late night drives through the northern Midwest Mm. states to various jobs. My own story has a brief setup, so I'll begin there. About eight years ago, while I was active duty in the Navy, I had been stationed in western Washington State uh, on the Kitsap Peninsula, 
My job in the Navy was a hard hat driver. Think men of honor for a point of reference. We mostly serviced various naval ships and aircraft carriers and submarines, performing routine and emergency maintenance. But every once in a while, my unit would get pimped out to local entities for various underwater tasks. We all loved these assignments because it meant a few nights away from the routine work and a chance to explore a bit of the Pacific Northwest, which we all love so much. One common reoccurring job we would be hired for was maintenance on the Hiram M. Chittenden, I can't, Chittenden Navigational Lock System, commonly known as the Ballard Locks, due to their location in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle. The locks connect... The locks connect to the Puget Sound through Lake Union to Lake Washington. The locks were built in the early 1900s and, to my knowledge, opened for maritime traffic in the spring of 1917. To say they were old is a severe understatement, but the most impressive thing about this facility is that the vast majority of the internal workings and mechanisms are original. In February of 2013, my unit received a request to conduct routine cleaning of the lock chamber, a job we had done many times in the past. It involved closing the upstream and downstream lock doors, one set at a time, and using divers on the bottom to clear away any debris or sediment that had made its way into the chamber. Because of the sweeping motion the doors made, everything you could imagine would get sucked into the chamber and block the ceiling surfaces of the doors, creating a dangerous situation. We're talking about logs, tires, crab pots, pieces of old boats, general garbage, and junk. And this is where the story really takes off. Before each dive, to ensure our safety in the water, we would have to lock out the pumping machinery and electronic system to ensure nothing was accidentally operated or turned on that could injure a diver. This involved an Army Corps of Engineer employee walking us around this extremely old industrial building in very low light, deep underground where the equipment was located. We would then place literal chains and padlocks on the equipment. Mm. Our guide that February was a giant man we nicknamed Clegg. Clegg was about 6'3", 250, with an impressive Viking beard, neck tattoos, and a dirty set of overalls. Clegg looked like he'd be more at home riding through surges with his old lady than anywhere else. <laughs> As we descended the ornate staircase into the bowels of the facility, Clegg asked if I knew about the Lady of the Locks. The who? I replied. Lady of the Locks, he spat back in a low voice with bits of loose tobacco clinging to his lower lip and beard. I had told him I hadn't, excited to hear what lame story he had in an attempt to spook the new guy. Well, he began, these locks were built almost 100 years ago. I'm sure you can tell by the way things look around here. Back in the day, someone had to keep the locks all the time in case ships needed to come in or out round the clock. They hired this guy, and he moved onto the property with his wife. I'll show you their picture later. We got a copy hanging in the control room. Anyway, this guy and his wife, real young couple, newlyweds. We were deep into the tunnels beneath the facility at this point with only bare light bulbs and Clegg's flashlight to guide us. She was a hot little thing, blonde, kind of the village bicycle, if you know what I mean. So this guy had his hands full with her. Well, apparently getting married didn't mean a whole lot to her as far as fidelity goes. One night he catches her coming home late. One night he catches her coming home late. Some other guy walking her home because, you know, the lockmaster can't leave the locks. So he loses it, grabs her by the hair, drags her over the edge of the locks and tosses her in. 
You know, back then, ladies used to wear dresses a lot, and it's goddamn Seattle, cold as hell, gloomy most of the time, so she's got on an overcoat. Well, as the weight sank her right into the bottom, well, the weight of that all sank her right into the bottom. Never found her body. He told everyone she must have ran off with some other fella, but everyone was real suspicious. Wow, I said as he finished his story. He really showed her, trying to lighten the mood. Oh man, she's down there, Clegg said. People walking through the park hear her splashing and gasping at night, coming from the locks, but when the cops show up, there's never anyone around. That, coupled with the labyrinth of dark tunnels Clegg had been leading us around, gave me the chills. But I quickly shook it off and as a story and joked that he really is a crazy old man like everyone had warned me about. We finished our task and headed back up to the main floor, but as I was leaving, Clegg grabbed my shoulder with a greasy paw and said, If you see her, tell her we said hi. Then he cracked a hearty smile. Sure, he'd spooked me as he shuffled away. I made my way back to our dive boat and told the rest of the crew the ghost story Clegg had told me, positive they'd all chime in with the times Clegg had told them the exact same story. A few of the guys laughed, but mostly I was met with replies of, man, that's fucked up. None of them had been told that story, despite almost all of them having taken Clegg's dungeon tour before. I quickly put the story out of my mind and prepared for the dive. Equipment was checked and double-checked. I put on my wetsuit, and the tenders assisted me in putting on my helmet. I stepped to the edge of the low platform, just above the water surface. As I was about to jump into the water, I glanced towards the control building, and there was Clegg standing against the rail, watching. As soon as I entered the water, the familiar icy pinpricks of the Puget Sound infiltrated my suit. I knew my body heat would soon warm me back up, but there's always those first few minutes of pure agony. I set off work, I set off to work, clearing rocks, broken shells, old bottles, car tails, half a salmon, and what looked like part of a shopping cart. I'd made my way over to the lock door, still searching for obstructions. The depth wasn't blackening, and the day was cold and clear, so as the sunlight penetrated the water above me, it cast a greenish hue all around me. I had warmed up, but as soon as I reached the end of the lock where the doors were located, I was instantly hit with a rush of cold water. It wasn't your average chill. It was icy. Of course, that was the moment I started replaying Clegg's story in my mind over and over again. Only the rhythmic sound of my breathing to accompany the story replaying in my mind. I was on the lock door now, shivering from the cold water. When the supervisor's voice came over my earphones, you getting cold down there? No way, I said, just getting started. Or maybe it was Clegg's ghost story, he joked. Anyone who's been in the military or around a group of 20-something-year-old guys knows that the absolute last thing you want to do is let them know you're scared. So I laughed and said in a bored, monotone voice, Oh yeah, she's got me. The ladies got me. To play it off. No sooner had the words left my mouth than I saw it. Wedged into the crease beneath the locked door and the cement wall. Fabric. It was ornate with flower, with flowery, pretty patterns. There was lace around the edge of the fabric, and it was faded. What made it worse was that both set of locks were now closed. There was no water flow and no current in the lock chamber, yet this garment seemed to be swirling around like a flag in the breeze. Instinctively, I reached out and touched it with a gloved hand. It was lodged deep into the crevice, and my gentle tug didn't free it. By this time, my heart was pounding. I ascended about three or four feet up the locked door, and above the floral fabric was what looked like a perfectly round rock. That was her dress, I said in my head. That's her fucking dress. And holy mother of shit, is that her skull? 
There's oh. no way. That can't be what I'm seeing. And that's when I noticed the fine blonde strands coming off of that rock or skull or whatever it was flowing in the non-existent underwater breeze. I'd had enough. I pulled my composure together and said as cheerfully as I could, well, looks all good down here, ready to come up and out. Understood, the supervisor said, up and out on Red Diver. I kicked as hard as I could to the ladder, and as the tenders were hauling up the rest of my air hose, I couldn't resist glancing back for one last look at the flowing blonde hair and floral dress. Once on deck, I ripped off my helmet and was immediately asked if I was okay, a common practice for a diver who's just resurfaced. I asked, I said I was fine and was immediately asked, no man, really, are you okay? You look pretty freaked out. I'm good. I reassured the supervisor as he walked off. We finished up the job that afternoon and as our boat was pulling away, there was Clegg leaning against the railing, smiling at me. Was Clegg just telling me a story to mess with me? Was it an old piece of cloth and a rock? Hmm. Was everyone else in on the joke? Possibly, but in the few times I'd gone back, I'd never heard anyone say anything about that story. No hushed whispers of, we're going to get the new guy with the Lady of the Locks prank. Nothing. I spent six years as a military diver and the past three as a civilian commercial driver and have seen all kinds of underwater things. But never have I been as spooked as I was on that dive. Thanks for reading and keep the spooks a coming, Danny. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that, that current, like, I, I kept trying to picture, like, you know, just not knowing how locks work, the mechanism. You know, it's like I'm familiar with what locks are, but I never thought about, like, people being inside the machinery that, right. you know, that does that, that allows the ships to raises and lowers the water level to allow the ships to kind of come through. Yeah. And I was, I think I have the right picture in my head roughly for probably what it looked like when he saw that fabric and... I just kept thinking about how it's like, um, yeah, moving in a current when there was no current, mm-hmm. that would be super freaky. Yeah. If you know the water's still uh-huh. and whatever it is, you just see something kind of like, I can picture like that waving around. Mm-hmm. And then especially after hearing that story, of course, fabric and then the round rock, there could be a skull, like putting the all that hair? together and yet with the strands where it's like, you, you, I mean, clearly if it was, you know, like seaweed for lack of a better term, you would, you know what that looks like. Right. And you know what blonde hair looks like and it's right. very different. Yeah, I know. I was imagining that the system was like these giant cement things that open and close, open and mm-hmm. close, right? And they almost have like a tooth kind of thing where they, mm-hmm. you know, like grooves, yeah. and they connect and they lock. So I'm imagining one here is closed, and then this is a big vat of water, and then this one here is closed. So now this diver is at the bottom of it, yeah. cleaning out all of this space in between. So it's like a, a giant bathtub. Yeah, like a giant um, like silo of water. Right, right. And he's just in there by himself for that. Like just the Uh, thought of that, like this closed off compartment of uh, where it's all water. Yeah, you just have limited amount of air, and they have right. And like like if there was a machine, like if there was an equipment failure, exactly. (laughs) And then when he said that they like lock things up with actual padlocks to make sure that nothing goes wrong, I'm like, oh my god, those locks could open, and then what? It just would like (laughs) suck suck you out, or yeah. Like, I'm, I'm scared swimming in a lake near a boat because I'm like, oh, God, is the boat off? Am I going to get sucked under? Ugh. There's like, just such little room for error with, like, diving. That's what, that's what freaks mm-hmm, me out. Like, all mm-hmm. these scenarios you're painting where, you know, something goes wrong on a normal, like, work site. Yeah. It's like maybe you, you know, you, you smash into something. Yeah. Um, or maybe like, you lose like, a like, finger. I would compare it to an elevator. Like, an elevator yeah. where you're stuck in a compartment. If you're stuck in an elevator... It's not airtight, so you're still going to get new air. You're not going to run right. out of oxygen. But it could. Uh, 
Well, it could drop. Okay, okay. Then let's say you're stuck in an elevator on the bottom. Okay. You're not worried about falling. You're not worried about an air. Then you just think like, well, somebody just has to get me before I die of dehydration. Right, right. Which is going to take days. Right. And in a commercial elevator, someone's going to find you. You know, but yeah, you're just going to push a button. Well, I'm talking if it's broke. You know, like if it's, uh, yeah, you, yeah, button to call them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's happened to me before. Gotten stuck in an elevator and had to like call the service. And you know, they might, it might have taken them, I don't even know, an hour, which feels that like happened forever. happened to you? Mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. know that. Happened to me, um, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago in Florida. Huh. I was just, uh, Steamy. you know. Steamy. <laughs> and just, and it was just like, first, you're just, I was just kind of laughing like, are you kidding me? Were like, you by yourself? Uh-huh. I was by myself and I'm like, is this happening? And then luckily there was that little like in case of emergency, like you push that button. Yeah. And then it does connect you to some kind of like a maintenance person. It was like a, in Orlando, like a bigger hotel. Yeah. Where there's, I knew there would be somebody working. Mm-hmm. And luckily it did go through to somebody. And I'm like, hey, uh, I'm stuck in yeah. this elevator. And they're like, okay, we'll send somebody. And, oh. then of course, and then of course it feels like it took them forever to get there. Right. But it was probably like. 30 minutes. Sure, sure. You know, but I, but I just remember it was long enough to be like, well, this sucks. Yeah. And Did you, you have to pee? Mm, that, no. That's my immediate yeah. thought. Where will I pee? Right, right. Now, I wasn't worried about that, but it was just, it's just that feeling of like, oh my God, I can't get out on my own. Yeah, yeah. It's just not a... Uh, lack of control. Lack of control. And then add underwater to that, and there's a ticking clock. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know... Yeah, how uh, much oxygen do you have? Yeah, you got, what, an hour, two hours? And then it made me think about like that little area where we were swimming. You're talking about like um, floating up that little inlet. Mm-hmm. When you talked about the skull and the blonde hair, mm-hmm. it just made me think of like that feeling of seaweed hitting mm-hmm. my legs or eelweed or whatever the hell it's called. Yeah, eelgrass. Eelgrass. And then if I was going up there and you feel something hit your leg and then you look down and it's a fucking skull with hair coming off. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, that's going to freak you out. Yeah. Uh, Even if it's just enough for your mind to play a trick on you. Mm-hmm. And after... I'm going to be thinking about that now. next time I'm out in the water. <laughs> uh, eelgrass or hair. I know. I know. And there's <laughs> in our lake because of... Just the way it is, yeah. there are giant uh, tree stumps in the ground, mm-hmm. in the lake. And that scares me because mm-hmm. you'll be swimming and oh, you kind of look down and you, I'm like, is that tree stump or is that like a dead body? Or like, a monster. <laughs> yeah. I just think dead body, like floating with like yeah. its arms kind of up. And, like the car salesman inflatable thing, like the car lots, <laughs> where's the little, the little guy. <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, that... Uh. I, uh, water stories in general mm-hmm. freak me out, but uh, that, what the fuck was in there? Ugh. All right. Well, okay, moving on. Yeah. Do you want to go to high school with me? Yeah, I do. Okay, that's cute. Do you think we would have been friends in high school? Uh, yeah. I think so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, even though I actually like really hated high school, mm-hmm. never fit in. It was never my thing. Um, so... We all know that, like, a lot of, like, modern buildings have been repurposed, right? Like, you know, they, like, take old buildings, they make them into yeah. other things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like the amusement park situation, yeah, right? Towers, yeah, Right. And I think that, like, we had a story in Canada, maybe, about a high school that was also turned into apartments. And there was, like, I remember, yes, like, a janitor, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a red yes. bouncing ball. Okay. So all of that was, like, going through my brain as I was putting this story together. Because, of course, encountering any sort of spirit will be terrifying. Even if you want it to happen, mm-hmm. like... You're still going to be scared, but if you are trapped, like if you know that you're in an old building and you're trapped underneath the old building, very scary to, to yeah. see something down there. Um, and I was I was just thinking about like 
my high school, I don't know what it was built on, but like this high school, mm. we're going to find out was potentially built on like ancient burial grounds, mm-hmm. a bomb shelter, like a lot of like weird elements yeah. to make the school inherently creepy. But then if you had to go underneath it into a tunnel yeah. of sorts, just like in our mental in Danvers. Yeah. It's funny how like our stories are playing off yeah, of each other. Parallels. It would just be so terrifying to mm-hmm. have all those elements kind of come together. Mm-hmm. And you were saying like, so you've been trapped in an elevator yeah have you ever been like locked into a small space other than that no Mm. i have not luckily no uh yeah Mm -mm. i have yeah what my cousins used to lock me in the closet oh yeah you told me about when they would babysit and just leave me there for hours while they had fun but it is scary it's just like a a coat closet but i was always terrified like oh i gotta get out of here it's a terrible terrible feeling Mm -hmm. dear king and queen oh sorry dear king of the creeps and queen of the peepers and the whole scared to death crew I had a friend show me your podcast a couple weeks ago, and I've managed to work my way through all of your episodes. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And they've helped me a ton through a difficult time. It's become a favorite of my top 15 podcasts, and I've told everyone I can about it. I'm a total creep and love all things horror. After a couple weeks of debating and listening, I've decided to share my own story of terror. I have to preface my story by saying that I suffered from sleep paralysis as a child quite often. I saw the old lady sitting on my chest more than once and many other things that I grew accustomed to over the years. I only add this because my therapist thinks the story I'm about to share with you may be related to my years of sleep paralysis. This particular event happened to me while I was in high school. I was a total geek and I was on stage crew. (laughs) I was even paid so you know it was official. Our high school opened in 1936 and had at least one confirmed suicide happen there when a student who was turned down for a dance jumped the balcony in the auditorium to his death. If we fail to ask Jesus. if we fail to ask Milo, our resident ghost, for permission to have an event, something bad would always happen, ranging from power outages to stages falling over. Underneath the auditorium, there were so many of these strange happenings, or so many Underneath the auditorium is where so many of these strange happenings occurred as a Cold War era bomb shelter was there. This bomb shelter was full of aspirin that had expired in the 60s, tanks of water, and pamphlets on how to birth babies in a bomb shelter. (laughs) There were only two entrances to this bomb shelter. One was a trap door underneath this stage, while the other was through a boiler room on the bottom floor of the school. The trap door was always kept padlocked to prevent rambunctious teenagers from getting into mythical into the mythical tunnels under the school and partaking in all sorts of undesirable activities. This left the other entrance being through the boiler room. As stage crew, we had the keys to the store, but there was one fatal flaw with it. For reasons that were beyond me, if the door closed, you were locked in. You were only able to open that lock with a key from the outside. Now, that's just poor design. Mm -hmm. In addition to this horrifying excuse for a prison under the school, it was also rumored that the school was built on indigenous people's burial grounds. Now, I've never been able to substantiate this claim, but after this experience, I wouldn't be surprised. One day, in the lead-up to a huge musical that our school was putting on, we were asked to run a cable for a projector that was going to be placed at the back of the auditorium. Now, the only way we could run this was through the bomb shelter under the auditorium. And this enviable task fell to me and one other stage crew member. We were down there scoping out the project when we decided that the best way to do it was for him to feed me the cable from the second floor through a hole. 
This meant I had to go to the bomb shelter alone. This is where the horror truly started. Roughly five minutes after my companion had left me, I heard the one thing you don't want to hear in the bomb shelter. I heard the door to the boiler room slam shut. Now, mind you, this was 2008, and I had a flip phone which had exactly zero bars of service. I guess my only option was to wait for someone to let me out. And then the lights went out. I was sunk into the most pitch black darkness I had ever experienced. The one light I had was from my tiny little flip phone, which hardly illuminated two feet in front of me. It was then that I heard the most bone chilling noise I've ever heard. The sound of children laughing. Uh. It was coming from the pits of the bomb shelter where no one had ventured for years. It then got closer and closer and closer. I flashed my phone in all directions but couldn't see anything, just the sound of laughter getting closer to me. I passed out. To this day, I don't know why I passed out, probably from fear. Maybe a self-defense? I woke up sometime later, surrounded by the rest of the stage crew and our stage manager. They looked ghostly white. I asked them what had happened, and they told me, just look at your arms. On both of my arms were several bruises resembling the handprints of little children. Oh my God. I can explain away the laughter as a hallucination caused by fear and a brain that was already prone to sleep paralysis, but I cannot explain away those bruises. What scares me the most, though, was wondering what happened when I was unconscious, alone, in the tunnels underneath my high school. Thank you guys and the whole crew for being freaking amazing. Your podcast about things that hide in the dark really brings light to my life. Zach. Oh, thanks, Zach. Yeah, that's creepy. I mean, I mean the handprint thing. And, and, that, and that's such a creepy thing. It sounds like a great place to film a horror movie. Hell like yeah. Like this uh, high school with a weird old bomb shelter, like Cold War era bomb shelter underneath. It reminded me immediately my brain went to Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. Like, um, Oh, when is that show coming? When are all the shows coming back? <laughs> I know, all the shows. Like, uh, I can't remember. I think it's season three when it's like the mall. Yeah, I think so. And then and then underneath the mall, I don't want to like, you know, give spoilers, but there's yeah. like uh, there's some stuff, some Cold War stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. But uh, but those bomb shelters, I mean, God, you know, the, the government did make a lot of bomb shelters. Mm-hmm. And They're some, all over. And then there's like those, uh, in a lot of places, there's those bomb slash hurricane or tornado shelters. Yeah. And those, uh, yeah, just, I, I, but like, yeah, under the high school would make, would make a lot of sense. Of course it would. And then it also makes sense that they would just be abandoned. We don't really do that anymore. Right, but right. Like, what a weird thing where it's like, you know, through the boiler room and through this trap door, you can get into this labyrinth of places. And I bet people were doing stuff down there. If I was in high, like, like, oh, my God. Well, yes. But, I mean, if you're thinking about what he said, mm-hmm. it was padlocked from this one access yeah, point yeah, and then yeah. this other access point. I mean, maybe locks. like the, the crew members, you know, the people who had the key. Well, that's what, no, I was saying like earlier, of course, high school kids were getting in it, but that's why they padlocked oh, it to keep kids I from see, doing I stuff. See. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, like speaking to Zach, I mean. But you, I, w- I would no have never, been. I mean, I was not a good high school yeah, kid. I did yeah. a lot of bad things at school, yeah. but I would have never done that because like he said, you could only you get, get in if someone in. let you out. Yeah. You could just suffocate down oh there. God, if you yeah, if you went in alone and people, I mean, I, I even if you went in with like uh, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or like a friend. Well, you'd have an heir, I think, for a while. But like, but yeah, who's but, gonna fucking find you? I know. Well, if you went missing, you would hope that someone would be like, maybe we should check the bomb shelter. Why would that be your first? If it's wouldn't be your first, you'd probably be down there for a day or two. I, I or don't. Day. I my I would say they don't find you. I mm-hmm. say that's like hmm. oh days later they're like oh shit you know where we should look. 
That'd be a pretty big fuck up, though. Like months later, it's like there's like missing posters, and then they're finally like, "Wait a minute, did anyone check the bomb shelter directly under the school where they were last seen?" Oh shit! I just think it would be the last <laughs> place. Like if it's, yeah, especially if it's not a kid. I was just thinking about who would potentially go down there, and it's like, yeah, yeah there would always be the kids that have like the nefarious reputations or whatever. Mm-hmm. But what if it's not the kid that ever gets in yeah. trouble? I don't know. My brain spirals out on all the uh, worst case scenarios. But that's a, that's a great creepy story. I mean, terrible if it happens to you, but yeah. Well, poor Zach's fine. <laughs> Zach's fine. Zach's fine. okay. He's okay. Uh, do you want to do some uh, spoopy shout outs? I do. Uh, me first or you first? Oh, you can go first, my friend. I can go first with my I mean, spoopy shout outs. I am ready. Okay, let's do it. Um, I will go with um, a wee walk, like a wee walk. Oh, this doesn't feel like a name. It's just all like one. A wee walk 12. Well, maybe it so is. Thank, thank you, Annabelle. A wee walk 12. Uh, Marin H, Amber Bolin, Kaylee Curtin, Tim Bell, Joel Johnson, Tina. I know what I saw. That's great. <laughs> I know what I saw. Ashley Hall, Carolyn Bean, Pogo Three, Amanda Harris, Lainey Matthews, Daniel C A, or Daniel C. Uh, and, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and then Jason and Melissa Grams. And I would like to thank the following: Annabelle's, Sherry Miller, Christy Depoli, Jen Wade. Rachel Shusky, A-Train, Kyle Milfeld, Laura Turner, Christine McIntyre, Amanda Dinian, Daniel Van, Claire Bingham, Nicole Leach, Brianna Hope, or I'm sorry, Brianna Hope, Griffin Larage, Teresa Moss, and Colby Lawrence. Nice. And before you go into spoopy shoutouts, yeah? I want to get Daniel's name right. It's S-E-A-Y. So, Daniel, I'm going to give you three variations. I'm going to say, thank you, Daniel C. Thank you, thank you, Daniel Say. Thank you, Daniel Shay. I feel like it has to be one of those three. Shay, but not, there's S-E-A-Y, no H. S-E-A-Y, I know, but you know, you know, maybe it's in there somehow. What if it's C-A? Thank you, Daniel C-A. <laughs> thank you, Daniel C-A. C-A. Thank you, thank you Daniel C-A. I don't know. I don't know. What if, what if I accidentally just like left a letter off his last name? Well, that's, I don't know. Then, then maybe it is Shay. Maybe it is Shay. I know. I really do try and double check to make sure like, yeah. okay, I didn't screw this up. Okay. Some spoopy shout outs. I love this. To Allie from Cali. Happy birthday <laughs> and I love you, you creepy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> to Liam from Beth. Happy birthday. To Felix from Delia. I love you. To Alex from Carl. Happy birthday, brother. Carl is all the way down in South Africa. Just wow. as an FYI, cool. I know. Uh, to Adam from Kim, happy anniversary and love ya. When you said uh, that that uh, bad bitch or whatever it was, I, there was somebody on Time Suck who thanked somebody who was a shout out and it was, you boss bitch. And I, I was like, that's a cool term. Yeah. You don't know that? You boss bitch. Um, no. Like just a uh, super cool lady, like super tough, determined boss bitch. Yeah. Cool. Uh, that's all for today, you boss bitches. Uh, thanks for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan Keith for running badmagicmerch.com and our social media accounts with Liz Hernandez at Scared to Death Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. It's where you'll find pictures that correspond to our episodes and more. <laughs> thanks to Joe Paisley for producing and directing. Thanks to Zach Cohen for custom sound bed creation. Thanks to Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. And thanks to Sophie Evans for finding the first story and Sarah Finch for finding the second. Subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube if you want to watch the shows. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you want even more content at Scared to Death Podcasts. We have a private Facebook group for horror lovers, uh, creeps and peepers. Oh, I already said that Instagram. Sorry, it's a leftover here. And uh, thanks to Liz Hernandez for moderating our Facebook group. If you don't want to hear more ads, if you want more, uh, if you want monthly bonus episodes, check out our Patreon. Get the entire catalog ad free. So much more. Uh, 
Quick reminder, Volume 2 of that Scared to Death book of true horror short stories, all fans submitted, out uh, out now for pre-order, uh, badmagicmerch.com. And when they're gone, they're gone. So, so When they're gone, they're gone. And uh, enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. Hope you were scared to death. Bye, y'all. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but has no home here within scared to death. Bad Magic Productions. 